Welcome back to Cyber Context, a podcast featuring Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. I'm Christian White. Jonathan, we had a big announcement yesterday in a uh, field that's critical not just to um, you know uh, space cyber, but virtually anything that touches technology these days, and that is that Apple announced it's going to shift, is it all or most of its chip production eventually, to a uh, factory in Arizona that's being built. I guess one is being built and another is on the um, the maybe list or the soon to be confirmed list by TSMC, uh, the Taiwanese chip manufacturer that's uh, widely regarded as the one able to make the most sophisticated chips in the world. Um, what do you think this uh, this um, uh, is telling us about where Apple is right now? You know, they have so much production, so much history with China. We've seen unrest at their um, Foxconn run iPhone manufacturing facilities in China that has put some of their supply chain, first of all, uh, in a unflattering political light, and second of all, just an unflattering light as far as supply chain security. Is the same thing now going on with their IC uh, supply chain? I think that that's the concern. I think that, you know, the move to the move to uh, domestic production probably fits, uh, fits, is sitting two concerns. Um, and the secondary concern is supply chain security, right? You know, they, how do you know that you, the chips you're getting are the chips that you intended to get and they haven't been manipulated? Um, so I think that that is, you know, and bringing that domestic makes it easier to get those assurances. Um, but I think more importantly, as tensions rise in the Southern Pacific and China escalates its saber rattling about, you know, it, its um, claims to Taiwan, that really puts a huge risk for um, Apple and the West in general about access to advanced semiconductors. Um, and, you know, I think this is this is a really a topic that right now, you know, uh, covers a whole bunch of different areas from, you know, the war in Ukraine and the ability to produce advanced weaponry, uh, smart weaponry. Uh, and, you know, whether that's precision guided munitions or or lightweight drones, um, you know, and and does come back to you know, this this core fact that right now. Uh, well, and, and for the foreseeable future, that advanced semiconductors, while strategic, while sort of nationally strategic, well, not sort of like very definitely uh, a national strategic asset, uh, have henceforth, you know, uh, avoided um, nationalization of the industrial infrastructure. You know, there are you know, three or four companies in the world which can produce, arguably produce advanced semiconductors. You know, there's IBM, there's Intel, there's TSMC, and there's Samsung is kind of a follow along, you know. And those are the only company, companies, in the, companies in the world that know how to do it. Um, but then they depend on ASML, which is a Dutch company for advanced lithography. And ASML depends on Carl Zeiss for advanced optics. Which is a German company, right? And the, these, you know, ASML and Carl Zeiss are single source suppliers where it's not believed there's anybody else in the world that can produce the equipment they produce. So, and that's just at the like very coarse grained view of it. Like the, you know, all these factories and machines have very complex supply chains, which have lots of single source vendors that are, you know, distributed globally. 
So I think it's a it's an interesting topic, and I can see why you know moving production domestically would be important because you know where I mentioned they do depend on you know um, Carl Zeiss and ASML. Um, you know those are in fairly stable Western countries that we can we believe we can depend on. Um, but but we do see even that 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 dependency is complicated and that you know the US has you know recently unilaterally tried to sanction and deny access to advanced semiconductors to China and part of that was saying anybody who uses US technology can't ship things and we we believed we had ASML on that boat but ASML lately has been pushing back and says no we are going to deliver um, some kind some level of advanced lithography to China Chinese customers um so it's a really interesting, complex situation here. And, and it's also been you know, the other side of showing, hey, it's the first. You can look at a country like China, which has been trying for 10 or 20 years now to domestic, to create domestic ability for advanced semiconductors and has basically completely failed. Mm-hmm. They've, they've gotten down to seven or 10 uh, nanometer wafers, but not at production scale with, with multi-patterning, but not advanced the new... Uh, shorter wavelength lights. They've had to use kind of like packs with old technology and they still haven't gotten really, they, they can't produce advanced semiconductors at scale domestically, even after, you know, billions of dollars worth of investments in that industry. Does that surprise um, you? They uh, seem to be so good, not just at manufacturing all of the cheap stuff that we buy here, but also some pretty seemingly sophisticated uh, things. They have a made in China 2025 policy, as you mentioned, that yep. goes back some years. To yeah. try and create these, and they seem to have a limitless budget, but uh, they just can't get there. I mean, as part of that, semiconductor companies are better at keeping their secrets than governments, perhaps, or is it just really hard to do this without an, an existing industrial base and uh, and uh, you know knowledge chain, including all of the workers you need? Yeah, I, I think it's probably about the people, you know, and I think it's or more, but and the industry, like the supply base, it's it, it the it's a really, I mean, these are, yeah, the, the technology, which is hard. I mean, remember the, you know, for the, the, you know, under five nanometer, you know, or maybe even under seven nanometer, you need these extreme ultraviolet light sources, which are just like, I mean, they are sci-fi levels of engineering. The light source for these is you're dropping tin beads hitting them with a laser to turn them into a tin plasma and then exciting the laser, the, the tin plasma with a second laser to produce extreme ultraviolet uh, light or uh, as a laser, in fact, coherent light. And like you have to do all that without destroying your optic system, right? Because now you've got all this tin plasma around and you're shooting, laser, you're, shooting you're, you're causing it to fly towards the optics and you still have to manage all this stuff. And, you know, that's just like just one part of this. Right. And you think, imagine like you wanted to have a continuous light source that was based on dropping beads of tin and vaporizing it. Right. Um, and, and you have to do that with incredibly low, uh, you know, incredibly clean environment, you know, because you, you, it's, it's one part per billions is the requirement for these extreme ultra, these, these very small feature transistors, the cleanness you need in the, the clean room, which is where this, this, this equipment sits. So it's, it's an incredibly hard scientific problem. It's an incredibly hard engineering problem. And then, you know, 
a hard business problem to scale that up as well logistically. So it is really hard, I think is the answer. And it's, I think, you know, when you look back at where is China succeeded, right? It's in things that are largely commoditized. Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it may be advanced technology, but it's commoditized advanced technology or where some of the components, you know, some of the things they do come from, you know, importing the components where they're not commoditized. You know, you look at, uh, they refine most of the battery grade lithium. That's not, that, that's commoditized. That's a commoditized industrial process. Like a lot of the refining industry, it went there because the weaker environmental regulations. It wasn't because there was special knowledge, you know, and you look at their incredibly good at, at some aspects of software and exploitation today, but that's largely commodity, commodity because, you know, it's a cost zero to make the second one. Um, you know, so I, I, and when you look at like a lot of their successes in advancing their military fleets, that's a lot of it born to the fact that, that they can afford to do that because they uh, don't have to sustain their existing fleet that they don't have or they've retired it. And even so, you know, we see they've got a much more capable, capable Navy, but they still don't have a nuclear capable Navy. It's still a diesel fleet, you know, so, so I think. I don't mean to not give them credit for their incredible success uh, at modernizing, you know, but at the same time, you don't want to look at it as more than it is. Right. What do you think? I mean, there's a reason um, semiconductor production moved offshore in the first place where it was dominant in what, presumably California and New York uh, and then Taiwan and Korea and Japan, probably not in that order. Um took over some of the sophisticated stuff you have some in in, in Europe as well. Uh, is the industry losing anything by bringing this back to the United States? Or do you think it's I just mean, I don't think so. It's been here. I mean, in, Intel's been here the whole time. IBM's been here all the time, right? It's it's And until five years ago or so, you know, uh, Intel did have leadership in process. They were the most advanced, you know, company. They, they stumbled and TSMC got ahead. But it's, you know... And, you know, a lot of these technologies, you know, why, why did it ha get put hold in Asia? Well, you know, Japan had some of the most advanced optics. You know, there's a lot of lithography and optics was something Japan did very well. Uh, and that, that caused that to grow in Japan for a while. They eventually stumbled and, you know, South Korea and Taiwan, you know, took off. So, so I don't, I don't think it's a simple story, um, to tell here. I think it's that there is, it's an incredibly valuable industry that different countries had different expertise and they were able to leverage those into, uh, you know, growing in other areas as well. Right, right. Singapore was one I forgot too. Uh, there's a story out in the Taiwan News, some 700 private Taiwanese surveillance cameras containing chips made in China by a subsidiary of Huawei are currently visible online due to security vulnerabilities. Uh, doesn't say of whether that's an intentional vulnerability meant to allow access by uh, nefarious uh, Chinese intelligence companies, etc. But I don't know, you look at this, did the Chinese kind of screw up on this by having so many vulnerabilities, by having sort of easily observable unknown features on their chips, by having Huawei sort of do the combined job of, of if you sort of put Apple and the NSA together, you get Huawei. Um, 
Uh, do they? Is do you think they're? You know, you know, this is sort of topical, of course, because with uh, dissent breaking out in China and some open protests of a kind we haven't really seen in decades. Um, I don't know. The Chinese, we, we think of them as sort of wow, they they did a magnificent job of increasing their economy and uh, of growing their their prominence and and all, they get a lot of good press. But did they kind of screw this up pretty badly? I I don't know. I I actually would say no because we don't know. Like you just said. Is this an accident? Is this on purpose? Right? Cheap IoT hardware uh, has a systematic problem in that, you know, the manufacturer cares about it for 18 months. And they're not motivated to make it a great solid product that's going to be reliable for its entire service lifetime. This is a fundamental problem with IoT that the deployment life is longer than the supported service life. And so... You know, it's they're not motivated to make them secure to start with. And after a short period of time, they're unmaintained. So it's they get end up where we're moving towards a world filled with forever day bugs where there's nobody's ever going to patch them. Um, <laughs> so there's that. And then there's the fact that, you know, bug doors are incredibly hard to distinguish from real bugs. You know, if you do it right, you can't tell. Was this intentional? Was it not? So I think it's, it's hard. And and. And but I think we do know that the Chinese government cares about bugs a lot. You know, when the solar winds bug was announced, the was it the solar winds bug? I'm pretty sure it was the bug behind solar winds. Now there was some recent vulnerability. I, I'm sorry, I forget the exact vulnerability where a Chinese um, company reported publicly about this vulnerability and got it patched. The Chinese government is reported to have gotten very mad at them for not just disclosing this valuable. Um, offensive, you know, easily turned into an offensive bug to the PLA uh, for use against adversaries. <laughs> so, and, and that was that was not the protocol there. If you find a valuable bug, you do not tell the world. You tell the Chinese government. Um, so, I think did they screw up? No. Uh, if they did it intentionally, I think they're doing a great job because we can't tell, right? right. So. And I think they've done a very good job of intentionally trying to own 5G and they let it. They've got the cheapest products out there. And for many countries, they can't choose security versus the cost of the, the Western alternatives, which may not be any more secure if you're India. Right. Do you trust do you trust Western hardware any more than you trust Chinese hardware? It's probably all malicious towards you. Right. Whether it's. It's malicious to everybody, or you just get the special one. You don't know, but it's not in your. It's it's not it, it's not there for you. Right, right. Now you you sort of see that there is no friendly intelligence uh, service, and uh, <laughs> everyone sort of steals everything from from everyone possible. Um, you know, while we're still with China, we see this question comes up in Iran, and I don't know, maybe it's more of a software than a hardware question, but maybe not. Um, you have dissent of a kind. We've had dissent in China before, despite the Chinese Communist Party's monopoly on power uh, and dislike of any any sort of dissent. Uh, there were protests in Tibet that were ruthlessly repressed and protests in Xinjiang that leads to ongoing repression. Uh, but this was different. This was, uh, first of all, the Han Chinese who formed the majority. It was in Beijing and Shanghai and other cities. It also took place in Xinjiang. And uh, a couple of different walks of life, maybe a little more centered on campuses, which has been a traditional um, focus of protests. See this in Iran, too, where protests have been going on for, we're in our third month here, 
uh, and a little bit of flinching by both regimes. Somewhat surprising, Iran, who knows if they'll follow through, but saying they're dispensing with the morality police who are you know, sort of this uh, militia of thugs that go around and beat up people who are not wearing um, adequate head covers, things like that. And in China, basically, the previous word was COVID zero policies were going to be around for the foreseeable future. And they were been uh, at least seemingly begun to be dismantled rapidly. Anyway, that's more of a political thing. On the technology, uh, this is always, and this is something when I was at the State Department, it's always tricky. If you want to support dissidents, it's the last mile. It's actually getting them the piece of software or hardware to be able to communicate securely with other people to reach an audience. But in reaching you know, an audience of more than one or two people, sort of invariably, you're going to um, be informing the government of what you're doing and what you're saying and who's in your circle. Um, I don't know, you know, have you, as you've watched this, uh, the situation where, you know, we've moved out of a world where supporting dissent movements is broadcasting the voice of America, uh, on shortwave into a country. Actually, that does still apply to North Korea because they're so, uh, you know, the technology situation there is so antiquated, but with China, um, anything striking you with, uh, yeah, I, with, uh, I think, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I mean, China has done a very good job of controlling technology there. Like, you know, you, you really can't ship secure technology into China. Um, uh, that's, you know, even Apple moved the, you know, as, as you were mentioning before, um, that, you know, iCloud has also announced, Apple's announced that iCloud is going to right. encrypted backups, uh, and then encrypted backups, but I'm sure that will not happen in China. Uh, Apple before has previously, uh, domesticated the iCloud backups in China, uh, in Chinese data centers, which certainly give the Chinese government access to the backed up data. But I think what's really interesting is that the, is in fact that the, the answer to this and, you know, in the Chinese protests is one, these people have decided they're protesting, right? And they're less worried about being noticed and more worried about being censored. And because these technologies have allowed censorship platforms, which is interesting in the way, you know, TikTok is, is affecting the West is what messages are censored and not censored on TikTok. Is very aligned with Chinese government interests. Um, you know, not of course completely. You know, you can post on the West about Tiananmen Square without your post disappearing. But uh, <laughs> what the kinds of things that that they, if you look at it, there, there's clearly bias towards Chinese policies and their um, their content moderation regime. But what you're seeing in China is really interesting. Is people you you know constantly changing the messaging to avoid filters using you know mathematical equations to make statements because the pronunciation of the equation rhymes with with something they want to make a statement about and i think the the chinese people are you know coming very adept at you know language change and you see it in the west too i mean you see with slang to get around content filters on western platforms so I think it's almost like the result of the interesting thing here is actually is not technological exactly, um, but it's social uh, in that, you know, the result of oppression of speech through automated means that people change their speech. And I suppose that is a test of technical implication that it makes it makes the idea of automated censorship very different than than you would think. Right. And it's it's been a long term topic. I mean, it's been a topic of interesting a topic of debate in the U.S. since 
you know, content filters went into libraries and what was being filtered. And is it is it explicit material or does it also include educational material that somebody finds offensive? Uh, you know, and you know, I, I I've seen block lists of words that um the VA cares about and includes all, all you know, it was topical for the era, but it included things like um uh Iraq and you know, Desert Storm, but also other words like lesbian were blocked, right? You know, so there's <laughs> censorship is is inherently political, but people but but it seems to be also at some level possible. Um, you know, it, as long as the people are willing to be known uh, as speaking out. Right, right. Yeah, some people taking big risks. Um, but it does seem dissent does, uh, even in repressive systems, there was one uh, repressive situation, <laughs> the government, I should say, in South America. And at one night, people just uh, all around the city went out and were banging pots and it's uh, as long as you have enough people banging pots, it's hard for the government to round up everyone. Let me make a few examples. Uh, safety in numbers. It's when you get when do you get that critical mass for protests and then what what happens? Does the regime have enough confidence in itself to crush the uprising or does it does it worry? Um, does it think twice? Um, so it's interesting to to see how the reaction has been a little different this time. You mentioned that Apple had decided finally to encrypt uh, iCloud backups. This is something I can't believe. This is the end-to-end encryption. Something I can't believe they didn't do sooner. Uh, and I don't know if the FBI has specifically objected to the news, but has a long history of, uh, of expressing concern of end-to-end backup where even a subpoena to Apple or whichever company is containing the information does no good because all it is is gibberish um, without the the trusted trusted device, which um, the company doesn't have. Uh, is it safe to say that the FBI, the NSA, others have lost this debate in the U.S. and 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 that basically we have de facto decided that um, that encryption will follow the technology and not be dictated by law? I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I think I, I would first point out that posing this as the FBI, the NSA against end encryption is the wrong the wrong um sort of posturing because in fact those are large organizations where some people in it want that because they see the reduction in vulnerability it creates uh and people who are solely focused on um exploitation of one kind or another whether through warrant or technical means are against it right so i think it, it depends on what group you look at in those things. So I want to make sure we give them credit that it's not, mm-hmm. not a single view. Um, I think, you know, the, the debate that the, they always bring out like whatever the four horsemen of end to end encryption. And they usually involve like terrorism, money laundering, um, you know, uh, uh, child exploitation. Um, and, and who knows? I don't know what the fourth is off the top of my head, but. You know, um, I, I think it's, it's, I don't think the debate is over. It seems that privacy and security keep winning, but that it's a constant battle. And I don't know whether it will end or not end. I think it's, you know, and that this, this debate is raging in Europe as well. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think the, the danger that we really have seen over and over again is there is such no, no such thing as a backdoor only for the good guys. 
you know, when, you know, uh, Google first revealed China as a major attacker, uh, 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 you know, whatever, 20 years ago now, it was the, I, I, the compromise was of a lawful intercept interface. Uh, we, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, the Greek telephone system backdoored and used to spy on the Greek government using uh, a, a third party installing an unpurchased lawful intercept capability into the Siemens uh, equipment that was running their network. And, you know, even the, you know, no bus, a nobody but us backdoor of that, that exists in the dual EC random number generator that was implemented as a backdoor in uh, Juniper VPNs Somebody patched the, the VPN to put in a, somebody else's secret that your keys for the back door. So I don't think we can find a case across the board of a back door, a type of back door, which hasn't been compromised by a, a unintended party and used against, uh, uh, you know, against people outside of the power of those that are supposedly supposed to have it. And we even see, you know, more, more mundane versions where just, you know, People in call centers and companies and law enforcement who have access to to private information, they're only supposed to use certain ways, end up using it for private gain or even selling it. So I think the the evidence I think is on the side that backdoors are not a good idea and that we have other solutions. You know, we if if you wanna if you want to eavesdrop on somebody, you know, go to their home, right? Don't Sit in, you know, in, in, uh, some data center and press a button and do it, right? You, you can still do it, but it does raise the cost and you have to consider what you're doing. And, you know, yeah. just real detective work still works, you know? That's right. Yeah. You have the, uh, the, the cable repair van parked yeah. outside the house. And... I, I mean, people, the, the, the people, the proponents of backdoors talk about going dark in, in surveillance. Um, both for law enforcement and the IC community, when in reality they have the golden age of surveillance now. There's more intelligence information available to them than ever before, mm. you know, and and in lots of ways that are that avoid regulation, like you know, buying data from the I mean, law enforcement buying data from third party vendors that the law enforcement wouldn't be able to collect without a judge's order. Right. Um, so so I think. I think, in fact, what we see in practice is the debate is far from over, but the evidence is on the side of they're not going dark and we need more safety and privacy and backdoors can't be made to only work for uh, the individuals we want them to. And nobody has come up with technology where that's true. Um, there is a report out, I'm just reading this off of ZDNet, but uh, C++ has overtaken Java to be the third most popular language in a programming language index. It's the first time C++ has taken has overtaken Java, uh, and it's the first time since 2011 that Java hasn't been in the top three. Um, is this something that is directly related to safety or just coincidentally um, gives that's, us... A, that's a, negative on safety. C++ is going to be much less safe than Java. Um, I think it really has to change to do with the shifting enterprise software development environment. I think the trends that we're seeing uh, are a move towards rust for safety. Um, you know, Java is not as performant as C++. Java has its own small ecosystem. Well, it's very large, but 
but a closed ecosystem. Um, and the movement is Rust. And there's an interesting article out today, in fact, from Google talking about the adoption of Rust um, in Android um, being closely correlated with the reduction in new critical vulnerabilities and right. vulnerabilities overall. So I think there is there is evidence that tools change. Uh, tool safer tools can make uh, can reduce vulnerability, but uh, that in that particular case, C plus plus will make things worse, not better. Uh huh. You'd think that as as news comes around. I mean, uh, one just to flip back to Apple, uh, and this isn't quite apples to oranges here, no pun intended. Um, one reason I've never used iCloud is because it's like, oh, you don't have, when I looked at it first, it's like you don't have simple things like a second factor. I think they do now. And it's not as, as encrypted as any number of other backup companies uh, products are. So whether it's just backing up photos you, you shoot or critical files for a business, do you think Apple's going to get it right? Um, is this sort of the final uh, um you know, missing piece of the security puzzle of what's supposed to theoretically, maybe not in reality, be a more secure ecosystem for personal computing and services? I mean, I, I, I think they stand a chance. I think that, you know, one of our fundamental problems is the business model of the internet is one of surveillance. And Apple has definitely stood as, is intentionally stood out, you know, in, in terms of PR and marketing as counter to that. Where your things are yours, uh, you know. It's you know, Facebook certainly, and not even and, and Google and not even Amazon. They're all driven by data, by your data, you know. And Apple is the the company that stands up. Of course, at the same time, Apple is trying to become uh, a a now a ad provider. So we'll see how this all plays out. It's not clear what Apple's goals are, and it's it's hard to understand their motives. I think people misunderstand their motives. You know, famously, they stood up against the FBI against unlocking that that um, domestic terrorist phone, but that actually had nothing to do, in reality, with them protecting privacy and standing on the side of privacy. That had to do with them being unwilling to do arbitrary work for the government without compensation. Right? That had very much to do with are we going to have our engineers do work for you while you don't compensate us? Not, are we defending privacy by saying, no, we'll never unlock an iPhone, even when it's a terrorist. Like, no, it was, it was about, can, can they be compelled to work on behalf of the government um, or not? Um, right, right. Now that can get so, very time consuming if you're, uh, you know, they say you're going to help us defeat terrorists and then they're starting to later on say, We're, we really need your help seeing if this guy ran a red light. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's coming. And, and these are really, I mean, we really need as a nation to talk about this. Like, you know, I mean, the thing that most people don't think about is the fact that, you know, driver, you know, the, you know self-driving vehicles or advanced driver assist, those are not just technology that make you drive less. They're digitizing the world around that. You know, Tesla talks regularly in their their about their AI, how when they need examples of something that, you know, of some kind of particular situation, like occluded stop signs, they need a train on more occluded stop signs or cars with bicycles on bicycle racks on the back to know that the difference between a bicycle on the road and one on a bicycle rack. They like train up a little classifier, send it to their fleet and their fleet sends them back examples. Right. That's incredible for their, their data program. But what's stopping them? from recognizing a particular person's face or a particular license plate or 
you know, anything like that. What's 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 stopping them from using it for surveillance instead of data acquisition? Nothing. Right. And if you look at, you know, as we you know, I don't know when self-driving cars are going to succeed, but eventually they will. And at that point, what they really are are digitizers for the physical world that are constantly running and reporting home. And who gets to control what they report on? I think that's a really important question that's that's not being talked about at all. You know, if I were if I were if I were in Congress, I'd want to talk about this question because <laughs> I think it's far more interesting than whether or not the way somebody or other is rolling out their self-driving program increases or decreases safety. I think it's talking about a fundamental change in what it means to be in public. That sounds like a, a brave new world, one with a lot of uh, you know, good potential and a lot of scary potential, too. Well, That's all. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying, we've seen the scary side of this in China. China's shown what it means. Like, if you look at the, the, their success against the Uyghur communities, um, but then they're rolling out further and further where you can't walk 100 feet without being identified. So it, it's, it exists out there, but it could be much, much worse. Yeah, yeah. QR code to leave your home, which I think was one of the reasons that caused protests in China. As you point out, uh, you know, with facial recognition, with, with the digitizing of the physical world, as you point out, it could go very, very far. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Second Context. That was Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spire Oak. I'm Christian Whiten. Tune in soon for another episode. Thanks.